welcome to our federal uh, election webinar uh, as we enter the final week of the election campaign. Before we commence, I'd just like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land that I'm joining the webinar from today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And we would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you and our speakers uh, are joining us from today. Uh, with me, I have uh, my partners, Ron Doyle, Wendy Favell, and Alda Klimchak. Uh, and we're going to really bring together, I think, the substance of what we're seeing in the federal election campaign at the moment and what it means for um, us all as uh, employers and business operators as we move through 2022 and beyond. Um, the GoToWebinar platform does permit online questions, so please feel free to feed those through. Um, we will take questions throughout the, the seminar and I'll put my, my fellow partners on the spot. Uh, we do have a little bit of time at the end that we've put aside for questions as well. So our discussion today, um, as I mentioned, will include some of the observations uh, that we've kind of gathered over the last four or five weeks. Um, of the formal election campaign. And of course, the election campaign has been running for much longer than that. Uh, we also recently conducted our 2022 federal election um, industrial relations survey. And so we've got some of those results. So as we head into this weekend, um, both of the major parties are looking to get somewhere north of 76 seats in the House of Representatives. That's what we need. Uh, to form government in Australia. Currently, the coalition holds 77 and the ALP holds 68. Um, the emergence in this year's campaign of high-profile independents in particularly high-profile seats has the potential to take us back to the future um, again and to 2010 with a hung parliament. Now, hung parliaments are rare in Australia, not so much um, overseas, but our last hung parliament was in 2010, in which both the Gillard ALP and the Abbott-led Abbott coalition ended up with 72 seats on election day, and they then took 17 days to negotiate with the crossbenchers and for uh, Julie Gillard to form parliament. Um, as I mentioned overseas, it's, it's not uncommon for uh, parliaments to be hung, and so I think this is something that we can expect to see more of as the minor parties and kind of the aligned independent groups bring political focus to particular topics. Back to the substance of our session today, a little over two years ago, our workplaces and lives were thrown into the great unknown as COVID-19 kind of hit. Governments moved to containment and elimination strategies to combat the impact of the COVID-19 virus on both the public health systems and the economies more generally. The economic impact of COVID-19 on the Australian economy has been stated by Prime Minister uh, Morrison to have been something in the vicinity of 30 times um, the impact of the global financial crisis back in 2008. So now as we sit here in May 2022 with the public health response uh, winding back and a movement towards uh, strategies that enable us to live um, and work with COVID-19, we're seeing the real impacts in the industrial and workplace relations um, arenas. The survey that we conducted over the past couple of weeks um, 
kind of brought up some interesting statistics for us. I think it confirmed a lot of the uh, the perspectives that we've been gaining through our discussions with many of you. Um, about half of the, the survey respondents are currently operating under nominally expired enterprise agreements. Um, interestingly though, 91% of respondents to the survey indicated that this was normal when they compared it with the pre-pandemic period. 16% um, of respondents have initiated bargaining this year as the result of union pressure or a request from a union to bargain. And that's certainly something that we've seen a lot of um, recently. And there's some um, developing areas in the ESG regulation space uh, that Olga will touch on a little bit later. And about 50% of respondents are currently bargaining. And I know that each of Rowan, Wendy, Olga and myself um, have really felt the uptick in bargaining um, during calendar year 2022, uh, five months in, I feel like we've done more bar more bargaining work um, in these five months than probably over the past two or three years. So with such a high proportion of employers uh, actively bargaining, the key issues that we're seeing employers face um, largely align with the key issues in the industrial um, space of the political campaign. It is all about wages and cost of living flexibility and job security. Now, interestingly, uh, the issues of most importance to employers have kind of real uh, corollaries with those areas of interest for employees and unions. Flexibility and agility go hand in hand with job security. Um, for an employer, ensuring that their business is able to operate in the new global pan paradigm directly feeds into the security that is able to offer its employers. Inflexible work practices, on the other hand, um, that prevent uh, swift responses to market demands and other impacts on the economy are the antithesis of job security. So what we are likely to see is more bargaining um, in this space where we know that wages are a, a real issue. The CPI stats that came through uh, mid-campaign, the movement in the um, official interest rate is obviously feeding into the, the discussion. So there is also um, coming out of the survey, and this I think is fairly common with every election, electoral cycle, a reluctance to make significant business decisions right now before we have the results from the election. The ALP uh, reform platform, particularly around job security and same job, same pay, um, has limited detail. As we've been discussing, I think for quite a while since the private members bill was introduced last year and throughout this election campaign, um, the detail of how reforms are going to be framed, the transitionary measures that are put in place to facilitate the new regimes um, commencing and importantly, how these reforms will link in with existing industrial and legal frameworks, um, you know, particularly around labour hire for this space, will be key to informing uh, informing potentially business defining strategies. So with that, I might hand over to you, Rowan, to pick up on the, the topic of the hour um, and same job, same pay. Thanks very much, Drew, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, as Drew mentioned, we have had quite a number of roundtable sessions and lots of conferences with our clients on this topic uh, over the last few months, and it's clear that I think it's the biggest industrial relations issue in this election, perhaps side by side with the issue of wages growth, which we'll come to. And both of these issues are actually quite connected, uh, possibly more so than, than many realise. Um, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. 
But uh, Drew mentioned we do have limited details on most of the industrial relations related reforms proposed by the ALP. Same job, same pay is perhaps a little bit of an exception because we do have the benefit of uh, the private members bill that Anthony Albanese tabled just last November on, on this issue. And it does give us some hints as to what we might expect if we do have an ALP government in power next week. I think we would see a bill introduced in, in similar terms, although there will be some changes because there has been um, quite a lot of criticism, let's call it from particularly the employer side of the equation about how the bill works, the breadth of it, and the, uh, the red tape that would uh, be imposed upon business as to its implementation. So I'll talk to some of those issues today and then I might wrap up with uh, a bit of a list of things that I think businesses should be thinking about in the context of this legislation, because if we do have an ALP government, we will have obligations uh, of this type in some form. Uh, and it does really require some advanced thinking and preparation uh, in advance of that. Um, starting generally, the bill that we have seen places obligations on both labour hire businesses and the hosts that engage them. And those obligations are relatively extensive. And importantly, most of the detail that sits underneath it hasn't received too much of the mainstream uh, media attention. So there's a few things in here that once you actually look at the bill, perhaps might surprise you. Uh, and in speaking with employers about this, um, as I mentioned, there has been some concern about the breadth of the bill uh, and how oner onerous the obligations will be for business to initially implement, but also to manage on an ongoing basis. So I'll talk firstly about the three key elements of that bill and how they work um, before I get to some of the thoughts on what are, the, what are the big issues we should be really planning for and thinking about. The first key element of the bill is, is really the centrepiece of the bill, and, and that's the obligation uh, that imposes a same pay for the same job obligation on labour hire arrangements. So labour hire workers must receive paying conditions which are no less favourable than those that would be required to be paid to an employee hired by the host directly. Um, now, that also involves an obligation to afford casual loadings to any of those workers that happen to be casuals. And that's irrespective of whether the actual host employer has casual loading arrangements uh, in their own businesses. So that, that's a fairly big obligation and I'll come to some of the detail that sits behind it in a minute. Importantly, the no less favourable uh, paying conditions obligation only applies in respect of the same duties and hours. So you would look at the, the duties on, in which you're engaging a labour hire worker to perform and the hours they'll be performing it and then think about what you would be required to pay to your own workforce under contracts, enterprise agreements, et cetera, in the event that you employed them directly and make sure that the labour hire workers aren't getting anything less than that. There are some exceptions to that obligation. There's four of them in that you don't have to worry about same job, same pay, if you're a host with fewer than 15 employees, or if you're a small business entity, they're the first two. Um, the third and fourth are perhaps a more general application. They don't apply to labour hire arrangements that are for temporary leave cover of three months or less, or for arrangements that are really designed to temporarily supplement a workforce for three months or less. But there are some conditions around that one so that it's not abused. It, it doesn't 
can only apply to temporary supplementation of workforces that are caused by demand side requirements. So if there's an urgent um, uh, increase in, in uh, demand for your product or services that can't be met through your existing business, then you're able to look at engaging labour hire without worrying about all these additional obligations. That's provided though that you don't already have a labour hire arrangement in place in respect of the same work. So they're, they're the four exceptions and you can see perhaps how narrow they are. And I know from my own experience that labour hire arrangements are um, often in place for circumstances well beyond um, those, those limited exceptions. Importantly, hosts and labour hire providers will be jointly and severally liable for any breach of that obligation. So it's one that's uh, intended to be managed jointly by both sides of that contracting arrangement. And um, whilst the bill's called same job, same pay, it actually only approaches that obligation from one side of that equation. You have to ensure that the labour hire workers aren't getting less than directly hired employees or what directly hired employees would be required to be paid. But the converse requirement doesn't apply. Um, you might well still have arrangements where employees are earning more than, uh, than labour hire workers. And at least the bill that we've seen doesn't attempt to, to deal with that issue. So that's the first element of the bill and really the centrepiece of it, but there is a lot more. The, the second element of the bill involves a range of obligations on hosts which are designed to ensure that labour hire providers comply with those obligations. So for instance, uh, hosts have an obligation to share information that would enable labour hire providers to know what are the terms and conditions that they have to afford to the workers. Um, hosts also have to ensure that these obligations are set out quite clearly in the con contractual arrangements that are entered into between provider and host. And um, perhaps more onerous, onerously, they also have to take all reasonable steps during the engagement to ensure that these obligations are being complied with. Uh, it doesn't really give any guidance, the, the bill that we've seen about what those reasonable steps might be, but you could imagine it would likely require some kind of auditing arrangement where the host um, makes some inquiries of their labour hire providers to make sure that their workers are being paid the appropriate conditions. The third and final element of the bill that I'll talk to involves various obligations that are designed to ensure that labour hire workers are afforded the same opportunities and working conditions as employees. So for instance, hosts have to ensure that they're sharing role vacancies, not just with their direct workforce, but also with labour hire workers so that they have the opportunity to apply for those vacancies and perhaps become employed directly by the host. Um, and there's also a similar obligation related to that that prevents labour hire providers having any form of contractual protection from hosts poaching their workers. So it, it's really designed to set up uh, free flowing of workers to try and incentivise hosts employing labour hire workers directly. There's also obligations to ensure that labour hire workers have access to the same amenities and facilities as employees do and on the same terms. Uh, and also they have access to the same training that employees might have access to. Uh, and finally, perhaps most significantly, there's also a requirement that labour hire workers have the same rights as directly in hired employees to the determination of hours and location of work. So what that's likely to do is, is impose quasi consultation and notification arrangements 
that you would be familiar complying with in respect of your own direct workforce that perhaps you haven't had to worry about when making changes to these things in respect of your labour hire workers. So labour hire workers would be entitled to be consulted, be notified about any changes to hours of work and location, and they might also have the capacity to refuse to work particular rosters and, and hours, just like your directly employed employees would. So as I mentioned before, the same exceptions that I've spoken to, those four limited exceptions also apply to these obligations, um, but you can uh, really envisage that um, those exceptions are pretty limited and won't apply to the vast uh, majority of labour hire arrangements that are in place at the moment. So there's a lot in the bill that we saw tabled last November, and it is clear that the uh, ALP and ALP government would reintroduce a bill in very similar terms. So I think in light of that, it is important that businesses give some thought to how these uh, potential laws might impact upon their businesses. And there's, I think, five key things that you really need to think about here. And the first being the breadth of application of these obligations. It's important that you have a look at the bill, um, the November bill, and how it's expressed, because the labour arrangements defined by the bill really are likely to extend beyond what we would all consider to be a traditional labour hire. There's a real potential in how it's expressed to extend to arrangements like um, internal labour arrangements where you have one group entity that shares labour with another group entity. Um, there's also a risk it could extend to certain service contract arrangements that traditionally we would not call labour hire. Uh, it potentially extends to things like secondments and so on and so forth. Keeping in mind, of course, that we don't actually have the updated bill and we, we don't know what changes are going to be made um, to the terms that we've seen. But it is very clear that the breadth of application uh, will be significant and will extend beyond the traditional labour hire arrangement. And I think, Drew, I mean, you and I were talking the other day um, about you know, the ex potential extension to white collar type industries where you wouldn't have the traditional blue collar type labour hire arrangement in place. Did you want to comment on that briefly? Yeah, I, I, I think that the a lot of the discussion around same job, same pay um, has focused very much on, on blue collar workforces, but there are large swathes of white collar um, employees or workers who are engaged as contractors for various reasons, including because you know it works for the individual, it's for a particular project. Um, typically these projects will extend for longer than three months, so they're not gonna be caught up in one of the, um, ex the exceptions that are in the current um, bill. And so you could very quickly see that this is not an issue that is confined to blue collar um, workforces that you could see you know, significant IT projects and other kind of um, innovation projects where you are bringing in um, individuals, you know, who under the kind of auspices of same job, same pay will be labelled as labour hire. It's not that traditional labour hire um, group that we would ordinarily as employers classify as labour hire that will be caught up. And where you do have similar employees um, performing similar work, you then need to look at the whole of the uh, remuneration and benefits package that's provided and that's what I think you know Wendy and I have had this discussion as well a number of times around just what does this encompass you know the same job same pay great 
kind of really snappy title, um, so it's very easy to be sold. But it is, um, you know, the the potential for the net to be cast really wide, and for this to be one of the methods by which the uh, Labor government was able to shift its kind of industry bargaining style um, reforms um, is is something that I think we'll need to pay really close attention to. Yeah, that's right. And, and look, I think for those reasons, um, it is important to have a look at this and have a think about uh, what what changes might need to be made to your own sort of operational model, labour model, where you're sourcing that labour from, um, and whether there's any need to actually look at changing the source of that, the terms and conditions that apply to it, uh, just in order to minimise any potential negative impacts of this bill in, in a lawful way, of course. But they're all things that opportunities for that will diminish over time and it's it's best thought about now I think even in advance of uh, any updated bill being presented to Parliament. So that, that's the first issue to think, think about. The second is really about the no less favourable paying conditions test and, and how that might be approached in the context of your business and the terms and conditions that would be required to be paid to your own employees. And it throws up a whole range of questions on the current drafting. I actually think this might be one of the areas that gets clarified in any revised bill, but it raises questions like, does it extend to policy conditions or is it just confined to what appears in common law contracts, awards and enterprise agreements? How will the balancing exercise be undertaken to determine whether paying conditions as a whole are no less favourable? Uh, will that be a quasi better off overall test? Um, mentioning that tends to make people a little bit nervous. Uh, how will the monetary and non-monetary conditions be compared? Um, how will unique conditions that aren't able to be provided to non-employees be factored in, such as uh, particular insurance arrangements, employee share schemes and the like? And I mean, as we've seen with the boot, this does open the door for pretty wildly different subjective views on what is more or less favourable, particularly when you're comparing apples and oranges on monetary and non-monetary conditions. Um, so that's really, uh, where does the burden for making these calls fall? It, it falls with business, uh, which will, I think, unfortunately result in a bit of a compliance burden that will need to be worked through at least initially until um, the, the views and all of this settles. The third issue is related to that, that's the regulatory burden that will be imposed by these obligations and how best to manage that in the most efficient way. We don't know, we, we didn't see with the November bill any transitional arrangements. Um, it's, it's obvious that transitional arrangements will be required. Businesses will need some time to implement these changes um, and we don't know how much time will be given. So because of that, again, a good reason to think through how some of these things might be managed. Labor hire contracts will need to be amended. Amended. They'll need to be host-led. Uh, an audit process will need to be developed by the host. Uh, vacancy advertising processes will need to be at least reviewed, as will training and facilities that are offered to employees. Can they easily be adapted so that they also are fit for purpose for labor hire contractor workforces? The content of training, for example, I imagine would have to um, change quite significantly in order to accommodate that sort of broader audience. Uh, and the list goes on. So you can see with these you know, relatively um, simple changes, there is a lot of work that will go into the implementation and then the ongoing manage management of it through things like the audit arrangements. 
The other thing to keep in mind is that the law's likely to be relatively easy to enforce, particularly in jurisdictions that already has a labour hire licensing scheme, as because the effect of the scheme is that regulators will have ready access to a list of labour hire providers that um, will no doubt then be investigated to make sure that they're complying with these arrangements. So you can imagine that we would have a fairly active uh, enforcement jurisdiction in this, in this area. The other thing to think about is how are we going to deal with inconsistent obligations that um, might already sit in things like enterprise agreements. So for example, I've seen terms in EAs that require employees to be given priority access to training and vacancy opportunities. And that's directly inconsistent with what appears in that bill. So there'll need to be some guidance about what to do with those arrangements. Maybe they're made to be unenforceable. Maybe they need to be amended and removed from agreements. We don't know. But they're all things that will need to be worked through in the implementation of this. Um, the fourth issue to keep in mind is that we'll need to revisit all of these things that I've been talking about once we actually get a revised bill. Because um, as I said, I think there will be some changes in response to some of the public commentary uh, on the bill. And there'll be some tightening up on some of the questions that I've mentioned. The most favourable test, the transitional arrangements. Uh, and so forth. Uh, finally, and this is perhaps the most significant issue to give some thought to, it's important to be aware of the policy intent of these reforms and how this might actually impact the cost of labour. Um, the clear objective of, of the bill and, and these reforms that have followed it is to lift wages and to disincentivise what's perceived to be insecure. And that's apparent from the implications um, that you would see if the bill was passed in, in its current form. Because almost overnight, it's reasonable to foresee a pretty large proportion of labour hire arrangements becoming uneconomical. And that's particularly the case where you factor in service fees and compliance costs. Um, and for those that actually choose to maintain those arrangements, many will, will look at those, uh, have a fresh look at them and perhaps reconsider um, whether or not that's the appropriate model going forward. For, for those that choose to maintain them, wages will immediately lift because that's what the bill requires. Uh, for those that do revert to alternate labour models of perhaps direct employment instead, uh, there's likely to be a bit of a rush on the labour market. Now that again in turn drives up wages, at least eventually if this continues. And from the perspective of the labour hire provider, there's similar things going on. It will become harder to maintain a skilled workforce because every vacancy will be advertised to their workers without any contractual protection from solicitation of those workers. So retention will become difficult. What does that do? Well, it's likely to drive up service fees, um, in turn uh, reducing the attractiveness of those arrangements. So it's worth giving all of these sort of broader impacts and thought and reflecting how these increased costs and perhaps labour market pressures might impact on your operating and labour models and, and whether it's time to perhaps revisit them. Um, and that's all, of course, consistent with the ALP's broader agenda to drive wage growth. And it's one important piece of that puzzle. And if you sort of step back and look at the bigger picture uh, in the context of the ALP's uh, broader reforms, it, it becomes even more obvious. The same job, same pay reforms will reduce the attractiveness of alternate labour sources, particularly insecure labour. 
and may drive up the demand for direct labour and the market price for it. That'll work in conjunction with other reforms like the increased regulation of gig workforces and um, proposed addition of job security, the objectives of the Fair Work Act. And all of that will work together in an attempt to drive up the price of labour more generally um, and reduce labour market competitive tension, at least on, on the supply side, because there are less alternatives competing for uh, the vacancies. The ALP is also proposing to limit the ability to wind back terms and conditions of employment that are out of step with the market by prohibiting employer-led applications to terminate enterprise agreements that have become unsustainable. And that seems unrelated, but it is a piece of the same puzzle because that will reduce employer enterprise bargaining leverage um, in a number of ways. Employers have less access, likely, to third-party labour as a result of same job, same pay. There'll be tighter labour market conditions, more wages pressure, no capacity to terminate the existing EA um, as a bargaining tool to encourage agreeing to a more sensible deal. And so less incentive on employees to accept a lesser deal. Uh, why would they? There's, they can't go backwards. The worst for them is, is the status quo. And so there'll be an incentive to hold out and see what better deals might come. Um, that might uh, incentivise in a greater way than we're seeing currently access to industrial action uh, as being the tool that breaks the bargaining deadlock. And so um, again, whilst all of these reforms seem unrelated, they're likely to combine and result in a much heavier focus, I think, on enterprise bargaining. Uh, we'll see more employees covered by enterprise agreements as we see a bit of a shift to direct engagement um, and probably a bit more of a reliance on protected industrial action to solve deadlocks. But Olga, with that introduction, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on these reforms relating to wages growth and some of the changes that we might see as part of the enterprise bargaining framework if we have an ALP government. Yeah, thanks Rowan and hi everyone. Uh, well, as Drew mentioned, wages and cost of living pressures have certainly become a key focus of the election debate, and this certainly intensified in the last couple of weeks, particularly with the release of the CPI figure at 5.1%. And I think, uh, what, as Rowan was saying, some of the policy positions in terms of same job, same pay do tie in with some of the broader wage um, policies. So we certainly saw in the leaders' debates in the ALP's position is that wages have gone backwards under the coalition and that one of their major policies in the election is to increase wages and drive that wages growth. Um, in terms of how are they going to achieve that objective, there's a number of policies, as Rowan alluded to, that the ALP have promised that we've been discussing with our clients. Uh, most recently, the ALP has promised that it will ask the Fair Work Commission to increase wages for minimum wage recipients in accordance with the 5.1% inflation rate. And the ALP has also produced, proposed to introduce a concept of a living wage. Um, and the ACTU's position is that it should be 60% of the median wage. So um, the ALP has not actually put a figure on it, but that is certainly an area um, that's emerging to watch. Uh, by contrast, the coalition does not have a formal policy regarding minimum wages as such. But the Prime Minister also recently confirmed during the leaders' debates that the coalition supports wages going up, but that it would be less than the 5.1% proposed by the ALP, um, citing economic sort of inflationary pressures. 
Uh, of course, some organisations might already be required to pass on the CPI increase if their enterprise agreements have a CPI increase clause written into them. Um, and certainly we did see claims for that a few years ago from employees. Um, and additionally, any increase to minimum wages were also likely to see um, greater pressures to increase wages as part of bargaining, both in terms of claims by unions and employees to match inflation, but also as part of satisfying the boot. So as Drew mentioned, around half of the respondents in our survey said that they were currently bargaining. And interestingly, while just over half of the respondents said that their organisational wages objective was a nominal wage increase, about 35% said that it was actually a market wage increase. So I think that's consistent with one of the other pressures our clients are seeing on wages and remuneration outcomes at the moment, and that being the current labour shortage, which as Rowan said, might even be further compounded by some of the policies that are going to be put in place in terms of same job, same pay. Um, I think a lot of our clients are um, really uh, feeling the impacts of the uh, pandemic conditions in terms of restricting movement of labour, the low unemployment rate and the um, curb on overseas labour. And in terms of overseas labour, the ALP has also said that it will seek to ensure genuine testing of the labour market before temporary overseas labour is engaged. And foreign workers have always been a contentious topic for the labour movement, with the perception that this drives downward pressure on wages. Um, but another key policy that we're also likely to see have an impact on wages pressure is the policy drive towards transparency. So there are a number of policies that are directed towards this objective. The ALP proposes to promote and ensure good faith bargaining guidelines. And a key part of its policy is what they're calling truth in bargaining. And the ALP, ALP's position is that truth in bargaining will be assisted by the development of a disclosure framework with appropriate safeguards, they say, for disclosing information that is relied on in denying a workforce claim in negotiations. Now, we had a mixed response of survey respondents in relation to whether organisations were concerned about the potential for disclosure of confidential information, about half-half. Um, but this is an area of pressure during bargaining and the detail of any such guidelines and their status will be an important area to watch. Um, and additionally, the ALP also proposes that certain companies be required to publicly report anonymised salary data. Now, the proposal is to report on not only the gender pay gap, but also the managerial and non-managerial pay gap. Um, the proposal is intended to apply to companies with more than a thousand employees within the first two years of introduction and then extends to smaller business of 250 or more employees being brought into the scheme in the, within four years. Another transparency measure that Labor is proposing is to amend the Fair Work Act to ban secrecy clauses in contracts of employment which prevent employees disclosing their remuneration. And I think together with enhanced right of entry provisions for wage theft, which is also a proposal arising out of the recent underpayment parliamentary inquiry, one of the things that some of our clients have been discussing is a concern that um, this may lead to information being obtained through these transparency measures then being used in bargaining, almost in terms of an industry-wide claim um, and leading to the ratcheting up of wages and salaries. Um, but this drive towards transparency is also something we're seeing in the ESG space. So there's been an increasing trend over the last few years uh, internationally with a number of jurisdictions mandating disclosure of ESG factors. 
Um, and in speaking with boards and senior managers of a large number of our clients, we are seeing that ESG is by far one of the key issues that keeps them awake at night. Um, but what we're seeing increasingly is the linking of ESG with labour issues. So we're seeing more and more that companies are being scrutinised from a number of different perspectives, from investors, shareholders, including superannuation funds, employees through employee activism, external stakeholders, including ESG rating agencies, and government and regulators through parliamentary inquiries. And they're demanding information from companies about how they're addressing ESG risks, not only in terms of climate change, but increasingly in terms of labour rights. Um, and in particular, in the labour context, many large publicly listed companies are also under increasing pressure to adopt the UN Global Compact and the International Labour Organisation Conventions on Collective Bargaining. And then that is used as a pressure in terms of ESG performance once those have been adopted. So what we're seeing is this new added pressure in the context of bargaining um, and protected industrial action um, and also wages as companies are increasingly being judged on their ESG performance in the context of their industrial relations strategy and approach. So if organisations use some of the legitimate options available in the Fair Work Act in relation to bargaining, they may now be presented with a risk that their conduct could be judged through an ESG lens by external parties, including investors, shareholders, and in particular ESG rate, rating agencies. And a poor ESG rating can have an impact in terms of not only reputational risk, but also shareholder value. And this is something that our clients are now starting to grapple with this ESG pressure um, in terms of how they approach bargaining. But the other thing that will then potentially come into the picture if the ALP um, obtain government is that the ALP policy also removes some of these legitimate options. Their policies include closer regulation of the voting group for enterprise agreements to ensure a representative cohort, and as Rowan mentioned, preventing unilateral termination of EAs during bargaining. Now, the Greens also oppose termination of enterprise agreements, but theirs is more limited in terms of that they only allowed in terms of exceptional circumstances. Um, and the ACU2U position goes even further. Uh, we're calling that the wish list in terms of removal of pattern bargaining prohibitions, removing of secondary boycott prohibitions, removing content requirements, removing lockouts, removing restrictions on industrial actions. Um, certainly the Labor policy has wound back from the last election, but the ACTU uh, will continue to push for some of these reforms and it will be interesting to see um, how Labor adopts that in their first term of government if they get in. And certainly a large proportion of survey respondents had considered some of these options um, during bargaining, um, both in terms of terminating an EA um, and in terms of use of lockouts or applying to suspend or, or terminate industrial action. So as Rowan mentioned, on their own, these measures might not seem significant proposals, but when looked at in their totality, together with this added pressure of ESG scrutiny, they have the potential to significantly hamper an employer's ability to bargain effectively. Um, but another area of ESG pressure that we've seen in the last 12 months is also in relation to sexual harassment. There's increasing scrutiny of that area as well. And so, Wendy, I'll throw over to you just to discuss some of the reforms around that topic. Thanks, Olga. Yeah, just briefly, um, obviously, following respective work, there's been a lot of focus over the last couple of years on the issue of sexual harassment. And there's been a lot of planning and a lot of our clients that probably is in some ways 
head of the legislative position. So we've only just seen some minor amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act. Labor certainly is proposing for all of the Commonwealth anti-discrimination laws to be in the one act, which, and, and a bit of a review of the exemptions. So having the potential, I guess, to wind back some of the exemptions and broaden discrimination laws out. Of course, the Liberal Party have come out and said, we're going to continue to push our agenda in relation to religious discrimination. So that's going to, that's going to be really their focus. Um, but but Labor has come out very strong and said, we are going to legislate all respect at work recommendations, including the positive duty, the positive duty that employers have to take um, reasonable steps to eliminate um, sexual harassment and other forms of discrimination. Now, the Liberal Party haven't said no to that amendment. What they've said in some of the Senate reports has been, look, we're still considering that. We want to consult more about how this is going to work in practice. I suspect a lot of the pressure from employers, from from um, from employees and others are going to be that that's going to be where we end up, regardless of which government we have. Um, but certainly, in many ways, the legislation is behind what a lo what a lot of employers are looking at. And I think we're in a we're in a context where no longer simply having a policy and having some um, having some structure around investigations is enough. Many people are looking at very creative ways of trying to make employees comfortable, making more complainants step forward in relation to these kinds of issues because we know that people are very cautious about speaking up about these issues and, and many, over many, many years, have just been not willing to take on the issue for fear, for fear of, of their own position. So. Again, a lot of pressure in this area. It's continually something that we're speaking to boards about. The legislative position is a little bit behind, but I suspect regardless of, of which way we end up, we're gonna have we're gonna have that positive duty. Um, Drew, do you wanna do we kick on to our favorite other topic, wage theft? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um the other kind of area probably to note, which hopefully is a little bit less confronting and people are a little bit more prepared for given we've only been talking about this for the last few years, is, is obviously the, the concept of wage theft. So many employers are still um, reviewing their arrangements, are screening different areas of their business and looking, I guess, at their governance arrangements from hiring to termination to, to see, do we have enough checks and balances in that system? Um, the Liberal Party have said that they're going to reintroduce Omnibus, which included kind of a criminal um, aspect to dealing with systemic underpayments. So those that are deliberate, not the not intended to capture the accidental ones, like a lot of the ones that we're seeing, but has the potential to pick that up if you identify issues and they're not resolved. Again, Labor has also that similar position. We already have that in Queensland and Victoria. It is in the legislation now or a similar sort of thing. So expect that to be a national piece. Um, Labor is also proposing things like higher penalties for underpayments um, and also trying to broaden accessorial liability provisions so that you are, they're trying to look at making sure that corporations who are the kind of economic decision makers at the top are suddenly having being required to have more oversight over the people under them. And, and that goes hand in hand with what Rowan was talking about in terms of labour hire arrangements and some of the audits that you might have to put in place. So I suspect that's going to come in with, um, it'll fit in neatly with the same job, same pay concept. 
so I guess for a lot of employers, we've been talking about this for a while. It's 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 something that I think is is coming. There's a bit of momentum there, but again, looking at your own arrangements and reviewing those, putting those checks and balances in in place is the best thing that can prepare you for that, um, which I'm sure is coming. Absolutely, and when you just one other thing I think um, that bears mentioning in the kind of grab bag of um, proposed amendments coming through from the ALPs, the introduction of a new objective into the Fair Work Act, a, a job security objective, um, combined with uh, broader arbitral powers for the Fair Work Commission. So we are seeing um, here, you know, the implementation on the one hand of a consideration that the Fair Work Commission needs to take into account whenever it's exercising its powers. Um, and that it doesn't matter if that's in relation to bargaining and unfair dismissal, um, a general protections claim or any other uh, matter that the, the Commission's dealing with, and then the broadening of arbitral powers, particularly in the bargaining space. So there you can see, um, whilst the ALP isn't formally pushing its kind of industry-wide bargaining regimes or, or policies, um, that it is creating a, a kind of ecosystem where job security really can come to the forefront, and then you add in, um, you know, transparency and pay, um, the same job, same pay and the other arrangements. And all of a sudden we have this kind of quite holistic approach to ensuring that there is a move to greater permanency of employment, greater security of employment. Um, and just one question that's come through, um, perhaps I'll throw this to you, Rowan, is um, when we're looking at the same job, same pay, are we, are we looking at direct hire casuals and labour hire casuals, or do we need to consider, you know, a labour hire casual and are they receiving paying conditions commensurate with a permanent direct employee? Yeah, look, that, that's a good question. The, the issue to consider is what are the duties and hours being performed by the labour hire worker? If they are a casual employee, worker doing X duties for Y hours, then you effectively, at least in theory, transplant that to a direct hire employee and ask yourself, what would you be required to pay that person? under your own arrangements for those same hours, for that uh, the same duties. So if they're a casual, what are your casual conditions? If they're a permanent, what are your permanent conditions? There's one exception to that and it adds an extra requirement. That is, if we're talking about casual workers, then even if under your own organisation's direct employment conditions, you don't have a casual loading of casual employees, then nevertheless, you need to ensure that the labour hire workers are getting one. So it's, it's in effect a bit of a top up for casual labour hire workers. And I, I think one of the other issues to think about in the broader bargaining context um, is the ALP's proposal for the truth in bargaining um, regime and how that would tie into to good faith bargaining. Olga, you mentioned this earlier. Um, Rowan, Wendy, Olga, the consequences of a company failing to comply with uh, those types of requirements in bargaining can be uh, many and in many circumstances severe. What do you think the the potential impact of these types of regimes that do require companies to proactively disclose information to um, bargaining representatives, unions, employees in bargaining might be? I'm a little bit... Sorry, go run. I was just going to say, the, the problem with this one, Drew, it's one that agitates me a little bit because um, we actually don't know what it means. 
um, because there's already a truth in bargaining scheme. It's the good faith bargaining requirements requires the disclosure of relevant information except commercially sensitive information. If you accept that's the starting point, is this a proposal to require disclosure of commercially sensitive information? I mean, surely not. In any event, I mean, there's still already an obligation to disclose that to an extent through continuous disclosure regimes, depending on the significance of changes um, being considered and proposed by businesses. So the, the real issue I have with it is I don't know how far it's intended to go. We already have those obligations. They're perhaps um, insufficiently utilised by both employers and employees, but the solution to insufficient utilisation of existing regulation is not more regulation. Um, it's perhaps um, education. And um, so I, I think it's really hard to comment on that. But Wendy, did you, did you want to add to that? Uh, see, I'm much more pessimistic. See, I, I suspect that it is trying to target that that commercially sensitive information. You know, some of the financials that go into the the wage deals that employers are putting up. Um, and I worry that it'll be used a little bit akin to a discovery type obligations where they're trying to just gather as as much intel as they can. Um, of course the consequences of not complying with an order that relates to bargaining can be that the employer could be um, prevented from um, engaging with a lockout at later stage. So I'm a lot more, I think this one could potentially be a bit of a sleeper for something that really is trying to get information that normally people wouldn't have access to. So yeah, devil's in the detail, but I'm a little bit more pessimistic about this one. And while we're on kind of pessimism in bargaining, Wendy, uh, we briefly mentioned the representative cohorts for enterprise agreement voting. Did you want to just elaborate exactly on what the a representative cohort means? I think that could be quite significant. I think there's there was there's been a number of cases through the commission in you know years and years and years of of bargaining where employers were were adopting what what I call a startup agreement where you're setting up a new business where you're getting three or four employees to sign up to an enterprise agreement that can cover a much much larger cohort down the track and there have been many many challenges to this so I think this is really looking at those sorts of agreements um, of course by the time often the unions become aware of it it's almost too late either they're able to challenge it during the approval stage or in some cases they've actually challenged it like a year down the track when they've realised that it's that it's come into play. So it's I think it's really trying to, to, to look at those types of agreements and make sure that they're with all of the classifications, which you know often those agreements cover multiple awards and, and many, many classifications, that the people voting on it are actually the people who are aligned to those classifications. So Again, I suspect that's where it's coming from. Um, the legitimacy of those arrangements, you know, with careful planning, it is achievable, but that's really what that one is targeted at, which is which is quite interesting. And Olga, just another question kind of related to wages. There's um, talk on the ALP side of things about a move to a, a living wage as opposed to the current minimum wage arrangements. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about kind of the living wage concept? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. I think it has a lot of its origins from a lot of the international um, labour movements ideas around a universal position for um, in 
employees to be able to support their families and that a minimum wage um, isn't sufficient to do that, but a living wage will enable them to, um, to do so. It, it, it will be higher than the minimum wage, but the question is when, where will it be set at and what does it include? Is it just the base pay or you know, is it broader in terms of other terms and conditions? And how will that minimum be enshrined in the legislation? Is it gonna be in the modern awards? Um, so the, again, the devil will be in the detail, but again, it will be around what what's the base? Will it then impact as the, um, other enterprise agreements in boot tests um, and what will it cover? Um, I think, as I said before, the ACTU is pushing for a 60% of the median wage in terms of statistically. So, um, and is there gonna be some sort of transition um, in terms of if it goes quite up, up quite significantly, how are we gonna get there over time? And how will that be reviewed? Will there be submissions in the same way as there is currently submissions in terms of the minimum wage and who can make those submissions? Um, so that it'll be an interesting topic to watch in terms of um, how it will actually be implemented in the legislation, but could have those significant ramifications in terms of driving further uh, wage pressures because it will essentially lift the bar um, in terms kind of payment. Kind of takes us back to older awards where you had it under the workplace relations system where you had kind of minimum rates and then you had a lot of awards that were actual rates and trying to push push those awards up up so it's it, in a way it's taking us back to old systems I think but I mean the ALP I think have been pretty hesitant about committing to that at the moment they're really just trying to push um, the 5.1% inflation through the minimum um, minimum wage submissions through the commission. So to, to go to living wage is quite a significant step, I think. But I, I wouldn't, yeah, it's it's one to watch, definitely. Yeah, and I, I definitely think the pressure on wages is not something that's going away anytime soon. I know, um, again, this is a flashback to the early days of my career when CPI was much higher. Um, and there was the real pressure on wages and we were looking historically at, okay, over the life of the last two, three agreements, where have our wage increases sat versus CPI? And what I'm finding with a lot of clients at the moment is that over the preceding 10 to 15 years, despite the fact that CPI has been low and general wage growth has been low, the wages afforded, the increases afforded to employees throughout those enterprise agreements has actually kept ahead of CPI and so there's kind of a, a leveling off that um, a lot of employers are looking to try and, and balance out um, at the moment as well. Um, I think we can learn a lot from the global labour movement and the types of initiatives that are coming through, particularly the UK and New Zealand. Um, it's certainly where we're seeing movements in the multi-employer industry bargaining space, um, but equally, and this is probably touching more on an ESG um, concept, the expansion of union rights and employee rights in the um, decision-making processes of companies. And so the ALP is proposing broader rights for unions in terms of right of entry. Um, some of the uh, other areas that we're seeing movement in across the UK and, and the US is the move towards having employee um, seats on boards or employee representative seats on boards. And you can very easily see the confluence of um, the ESG ratings, employees having a, a say in the 
kind of um, future of the company and inserting um, either union representative or, or employee representative seats onto boards, um, training, leave, all of those types of things. Um, before we kind of move to wrap up, did anyone want to add any kind of final thoughts? Brace yourself in for the year. It's going to be an interesting ride, I think. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, on a political front, we we don't have the experience that I think it was in, in Belgium where it took something like 520 odd days for a hung parliament to uh, negotiate uh, a coalition of seven minor parties. I don't think we're quite there in Australia yet. I think we can be uh, fairly confident that either the, the coalition or the ALP will ultimately uh, form government, what that government looks like, uh, particularly with the, the rise of the turquoise independence in the House of Reps will be very interesting. Obviously, climate um, reform is is their key issue. Um, and that, depending on which um, independent it is, there are a kind of series of um, kind of lower order priorities uh, for them. But in an in industrial and employment sense, same job, same pay is absolutely the key area to watch. But as Olga's um, pointed out, there's a number of these initiatives um, aimed at transparency, um, truth in bargaining that all have the, the potential to drive systemic changes, both in bargaining but beyond. I think um, as we move through this next period, we will hopefully get um, more clarity. Um, I'm certainly hoping for an election result this weekend, but I'm told that I'm perhaps a little bit too optimistic with uh, how close some of the seats are, are looking at this stage. Um, but we will continue to update the Federal Election uh, Reforms Hub. Uh, so check in there um, as we come through these final uh, five days of the election campaign and um, starting from as soon as when we, we do have an election result, we'll be updating uh, you there with our reflections on what the, the outcome of the election means um, in this space as we kind of all continue to manage our businesses um, moving through. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us and we will speak to you again very soon.